Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin the continuing series in the book of Genesis, a series called The Unseen Hand of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 37 to 46 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. There's an old saying that says, life is what happens while you're making other plans. Now, if you think about that, of course it's true. None of our lives turn out the way that we had planned. But did you know that Proverbs 16 verse 9 states it differently? It says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, that is to say, if you're about strategizing the ideal life for yourself, well, you're going to find out that just when you think that you're master of your own destiny, and just when you think that you've taken care to do the best you can to bring about the ideal future, well, suddenly you'll find that your feet are on a pathway you didn't plan to go down. And the reason for that is that your heart planned your path, but your feet were directed by God. You didn't go where you planned. Instead, you went where God planned that you should go. And of course, that means that you're not the captain of your own life. You never were. God directs your life. It's God who determines the way in which your life unfolds. That would mean a great deal less discouragement and pain if if we were okay with that. And of course, we're still called upon to make our own plans. But as we do, we should always add the words, if the Lord wills. I'm trying to get at something here. A great many of us are overwhelmed with disappointment, sorrow, regret, even a deep-seated rage because of the way in which our lives have turned out. You know, for some of us, we've only ourselves to blame. It was our mistakes and our foolish decisions that, that created the chaos we now live with. But when that's the case, that seems hard to bear. But for others, well, something unforeseen has happened. And oh, in those times, how we sometimes thrash about in either anger or despair. You know, some have even taken their own lives when the disappointment or or the gap between what might have been and what we wanted was actually a greater gap than we had ever imagined, and our souls are crushed. I once met a man whose dreams of running a business with his wife were crushed, and she was diagnosed with cancer, and then suddenly she died. And when I met him, he was simply unable to work or to plan anything for the future. I mean, he was a man who lived in constant despair. Now, is that you? Well, I hope not. But if it is, I hope that as we study the life of Joseph, you're going to gain perspective. But more than that, that you will see that it was the hand of God that led you where you are today. See, I can't understate the the pain that comes from those moments, those moments when our dreams for the future or for the ideal life don't come true. If it is true that the Lord establishes our steps, what should we do if, if those footsteps have gone through the valley of suffering? What if the house we wanted never comes about? What if we become sick? What if it's multiple sclerosis and you're left debilitated? What if your investments crash and your retirement isn't that great? What if you're prevented from getting into that university program that would have given you the career that you'd long for all your life, a career you think you were made for? What if you're fired from your job? See, in those times, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to say that that God was in this directing our steps? Well, I've heard it both ways. I've heard some say that, that if God were a part of this, I would hate God. 
So from their perspective, it's a lot easier to swallow if if God had nothing to do with it. See, it's far easier to say it was just random bad luck. Or in a fallen world, sometimes bad stuff happens. God cares, but he had nothing to do with that. But I've heard others say that if God had nothing to do with that, then the situation is far more hopeless than I had ever imagined. That means that I can't run to God for his protection because clearly anything can happen at any time. I might ask God, oh Lord, watch over me, but then God has nothing to do with a lot of things. Accidents and freaks of nature abounded. God has nothing to do with that. I mean, what's the point of praying at all if if there are large parts of our world and our experience outside of God's all-encompassing care? See, I say all of that because over the next four weeks, we're going to be studying the life of a man named Joseph. And when we look at his life, we'll see a host of things that he didn't control. He's got a dad who makes him his favorite. That incites violent jealousy among his brothers. Joseph didn't create that situation. And then, of course, he has malicious brothers, and he didn't create that either. And later on, he's going to be a slave in the house of a a lustful wife of another man who's also ready to be very vindictive. He'll be in jail for crimes he didn't commit, and he'll be forgotten and left to rot by someone who promised that he'd remember him. And when he comes to the end of his life, Joseph will say, God intended this for good. Yeah, you heard me. Joseph will conclude that all of the heartache and the awful bad turn of events were intended by God for a purpose far greater than he had ever imagined. It's hard not to read about this and to think of other examples in the Bible that are very much like the life of Joseph. I mean, for instance, think about Paul in a prison in Rome. He writes to his friends in Philippi, and in Philippians 1 verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Yeah, had I not been falsely arrested and then imprisoned without a trial and then finally shipped off to a prison in Rome, well, without that, the entire household of Caesar would never have heard the good news of the gospel. I wasn't planning prison. I planned it a different way, but God directed my steps. Or think of no one less than Jesus himself. Listen to what the church prayed after all the events of the cross had taken place. I'm reading here Acts 4, 27 to 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is the best thing that had ever happened. Jesus dying for our sins happened as Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews combined to do something that was altogether wicked. I say this to give hope that we might learn from a study of the life of Joseph not to despair when bad things happen and not to languish in unbelief and to simply say, God had nothing to do with that. See, Joseph's life will teach us that even the evil things that happen, although they are truly evil things, are still within God's providential care. God will direct our steps, and no evil event is beyond the hidden hand of a loving and gracious God. See, I promise you, a study of Joseph's life will help you to see the unseen hand of a loving and a faithful God. I am today beginning a four-week series taking us from Genesis 37 to chapter 46. No, we're not going all the way to the end of Genesis. We're going to get close. Now, as a way of introducing this matter, let's say something of the character of this man named Joseph. 
If you're accustomed to reading the biblical accounts of the characters in the Bible, you're going to know that the Bible gives us an unblemished accounting of everyone's life. And no one comes out perfect, that is, except Jesus. You know, as an example, consider Israel's great king, David, a man who is described as a man after God's own heart. Yet the Bible also shows us David's adultery and his arranging for the battlefield death of one of his most loyal men. This is also told of David, lest we think of him any less than in truthful terms. See, the great men and women of God are all portrayed with their greatest moments right alongside of their greatest failures. And that's just how the Bible reads. Clearly, in portraying its characters, the Bible does not present us with propaganda. This is unvarnished truth. This is not simply a romantic novel. Yet when we come to Joseph, it's really remarkable. He's not perfect, and we're going to see that most clearly, especially in the very early accounts of his life. But he is as close to an ideal person that we're going to see on this side of eternity. Almost everyone who studies the life of this remarkable man eventually sees him as one of their heroes. I say this at this point because I want us to see that the great disappointments that came into his life are not because they were his fault. Not at all. This man experienced betrayal, injustice, suffering, and and a whole awful lot more. And yet he didn't become bitter. Neither did he shake his fist at God and say, how could you have allowed this to happen to me? Indeed, it seems the trials he endured only aided in his growth in godliness. So I hope you can see it is important as we go through the life of this amazing man to ask and to answer just how did this come about? What's the secret of his breathtaking life? In the middle of all of his disappointments and tears, what can we learn from this remarkable man? And at the very outset, we're going to say, Joseph was able to see what you and I need to see as well. He saw the invisible hand of God in almost everything. We're so grateful for all of our listeners right across this beautiful country. And if you'd like to become a part of the team of Back to the Bible Canada, well, this month we'd like to invite you to become a monthly partner or also to participate in our special match campaign this month. So for every dollar you give towards the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, another dollar will be given up to $50,000, expanding our opportunity to minister God's Word across Canada and beyond. If you've been listening and perhaps you've never taken the opportunity to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada before, you know what? This just might be the perfect time. Join us in our $50,000 match campaign in October or become a monthly partner. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or donate securely online at backtothebible.ca. Before we dive right into a study of Joseph's life, let's step back and try to put Joseph's story into the context of the book of Genesis. What is the book of Genesis all about? You know, the word Genesis means beginnings. In every way, that might not be surprising because this is the first book in the Bible. And so we should see that this book is the beginning or it's the introduction to the story, well, the whole Bible. 
So I think it's right to ask and to answer the question, what's the whole Bible all about? You know, if the Bible were a paperback, what would be on the back or the jacket of this book that would describe its contents? Let's see if I can answer that question. The Bible is about the great and altogether perfect and glorious creator, God. God who made all things. This righteous God created a world in order to externalize the joy of his being. That is, this earth is a reflection of his loveliness. And so, in order to express how wonderful God is, within this creation, he creates man as male and female, made uniquely in his image. But the story of the Bible is the story of how humanity rebelled against their creator. And after that, the story is about the glorious God at work to redeem a lost human race. Now, right here, we should see how surprisingly rich is that Bible story. It turns out that the way in which God will redeem the lost and rebellious human race, what God will do about all of this stuff, this reflects best how utterly lovely God actually is. God's work in redeeming the human race reflects best or highlights the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. You see, in the fullness of time, the chosen one of God, the Messiah, God's king, would arrive and rescue lost humanity from their sin. And so as the story unfolds, we're left to breathlessly say, to God be glory forever. Surely this world reflects the unsearchable nature of the perfections of the God who exists. God, how you have displayed your glory in showing us your love, how Christ's cross tells us who you actually are. And the book of Genesis not only sets the stage for this amazing story, you see, in essence, the book of Genesis actually tells the entire story in seminal form. Now, Genesis can easily be broken down into two sections. The first covers chapters 1 to 11, and the second, chapters 12 to 50. Let's review Genesis 1 to 11. This section begins with creation and ends with a man named Terah living in a place, well, we now call it Iraq, or in that day, in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. In between those two events, that is, from creation until the family of Terah, we read of first the creation, and then we meet the first human pair, Adam and Eve. Then the first human pair rebels against their creator, and in consequence, they're driven from paradise, and they're now subject to death. But this curse also comes with a ray of light, a promise, a great hope. A great Savior will come, one who will defeat Satan and evil and deliver humans from their own sin, even while the Savior will suffer terribly to accomplish his mission. And with that, we have the account of Adam and Eve's descendants. The account begins with the murder of one of their sons at the hands of his brother. And as time moves on, the early history of the human race begins to take shape. It's a divided humanity. It's divided between those who call on the name of the Lord and those who don't. And then surprisingly, we see the scale is tipping. The rebellious race is winning and eventually persecuting the godly seed out of existence. And soon, all knowledge of God is going to be lost from the human race. And then as the godly race stands on the threshold of extinction, God sends a great flood that changes everything. All humanity is wiped out with the exception of one family. The human race will have to start all over again. But what if this matter, that is, what if the matter of the division of the human race and the increased wickedness is cyclical? I mean, what then? And at first it looks like it's going to be exactly that way. 
The majority of Noah's descendants moved to the Babylonian plain and they construct a city with a massive tower. It's a, a tower designed to glorify man as God and to rebel against the Creator. I mean, here the details are different from what happened before the flood, but the essential story remains the same. The human race will always eclipse the godly seed and mount a massive rebellion against the Creator. But just then, God intervenes. He divides the human race against each other. And in consequence, numerous nations sprout, all with animosity against each other. But the singling out of a godly race has now ended. A godly race will now always remain, and with that, the introduction to the story of God's glory and His creation is over. If Genesis 1 to 11 is the introduction to the story of God's glory and creation, well then Genesis 12 to 50 lays down the introduction to the story of God's redemption, His salvation for the human race. God will not allow the human race to degenerate into rebellion and extinction. He will save. He's going to rescue his own people. He's going to showcase his great mercy for lost and sinning humanity. So the second section of Genesis begins in an unlikely fashion. There was a certain man living in Ur of the Chaldeans. His family worshipped the forces of nature, and they served a multiplicity of gods, everything from the gods of the sun, the moon, and the rivers, and the other forces of nature. And in short, they worshipped and served the creation, knew almost nothing about the Creator. By now, that story sounds familiar. But among this extended family was one man, Abram. There's no indication that he was any different from the rest of his family, only that one day the great Creator spoke to him. Leave your family. Leave your country. Leave everything you know. Take your wife with you. Take a journey. Just start traveling, and I'm going to tell you when you get there. And then the great God makes him a promise. I'll make you into a great nation, and furthermore, I will pour out both on you and on your offspring a great blessing. I will make you my friend. You'll become my chosen possession. Indeed, in the days to come, this is what's going to occur. If anyone blesses you, they're going to be blessed themselves. And conversely, if anyone curses you, well, a curse is going to fall on them. But, says God, I've got a plan in all of this. I've chosen you to be the conduit of blessing to the whole world. And that's my plan of redeeming lost humanity. And it's going to be played out in you and in your family. Now, lots of stuff happens. But by the time we come to the story of Joseph, well, we become quite aware that Joseph is actually Abraham's great-grandson. And he has 11 brothers. Twelve brothers will become the foundation of the nation that will be used by God to bless the world. Now, if you've never read this story before, well, you'd be forgiven for thinking, well then, this must be the most idyllic family in the history of the world. This would be a family that knows the one true God and knows about God's plan to bless the world through them. And you might be forgiven if you imagine a family of love, of inclusion, of grace, a, a family that tells of the coming forgiveness and reconciliation of God, a family that awaits the fulfillment of God's promises a family that awaits the coming of the Messiah. <laughs> but instead of that, we actually come upon one of the most dysfunctional families we've ever met. They entertain idolatry constantly. They know more about revenge and hatred and envy and violence and even murder than almost anyone else. This is one family that at times shows great promise and at other times, well, it shows exceeding wickedness. I know what you're thinking. Maybe they're just like everyone else. Maybe the story is just a hopeful story that doesn't turn out that well. 
Yeah, that is the very logical conclusion. That is, until we meet Joseph, and like his great-grandfather Abraham, he seems to exemplify what God has in mind. But before we're done, we will witness a great famine that threatens all their region with massive starvation. And then Joseph steps out onto the stage and he saves a great multitude, in fact, the whole region in his area, from certain death. In a way, Joseph seems just like Jesus who will come after him. He is the Savior. He's come to save people from the effects of a fallen and sinful world. And more, just like Jesus who will come after him, Joseph will offer forgiveness to those people who have hurt him the most. This will be a remarkable story that will set the stage later on for what the gospel of Jesus is all about. But there is more. You see, Joseph, as we will see, recognizes the unseen hand of God in some of the greatest tragedies that a life can endure. And that's the promise to all who study his amazing life. I mean, you study the life of Joseph and you gain perspective and you gain hope and you start to be healed because slowly you will begin to see the unseen hand of God. And then remarkably, you'll see God's unseen hand everywhere. He's more involved in your life than you had ever imagined. Joseph will teach you that. John, it would seem like, you know, life would be a lot simpler, more straightforward if we could just disconnect the bad things that happen in our life to God. Yeah, I know. There are many people that do that. I mean, I have known, Ben, uh, you know, some people where some tragedy has struck, and, and I've had one person say to me, if I were to believe that God had anything to do with it, I'd never have anything to do with God ever again. And yet I've heard someone go through a very similar experience saying, if God had nothing to do with that, I would be in absolute despair. And I've often wondered about that, and, and I, I think the answer to those who are saying, I don't want to think that God had something to do with that, I think those people are saying, I wouldn't understand that God is good. But that would, in, that would entail that you and I you know, can somehow see the beginning from the end, that you know, God in his infinite wisdom knows that the very uh, valley of suffering that he has chosen for us is a valley that he knows uh, is what we need most of all. And, and it's, I, you know, it's important for us not to give empty platitudes to people when they're suffering, but to suffer with them. But I'm now talking about what we should you know, incorporate into our own lives. We need to see the hand of God in everything. Thanks so much, Sean. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Unseen Hand of God, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Psalms of the Seasons is our 2020 Back to the Bible Canada scripture calendar. It reminds us of so many things. It reminds us of the beauty and magnificence of this creation and the beauty of God's Word. A uniquely designed Bible reading plan by Dr. Neufeld is placed within the calendar, encouraging each of us to open up our Bibles every day. This is a practice and discipline critical to creating a steadfast foundation for faith. Use your calendar as a reminder to engage in the Bible every day and use the Bible reading plan to read through the Bible in 2020. This resource is filled with encouragement and it's yours for free. Just ask. Simply request your copy today and perhaps consider a gracious gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. 
Either way, call us for your free calendar at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.